0: Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast. The podcast that laughs in the face of politics, only for politics to laugh with it, causing me to say, no wait, we were definitely laughing at you. This is episode 120, I'm and Duyeb, and this week, as US President and Sea Pork with Eyes, Donald Trump, missed an armistice ceremony at a US cemetery in France due to poor weather, I wonder if Secret Service heard someone say it was pissing it down and got concerned it could lead to a compromising video. It's been quite a week for Trumpy features, and yes, you could say that every single week of his presidency, but this week, it's also true. I mean, it started with some very varied results at the midterm elections, proving that America is still not so much a United States, but more 50 dysfunctional ones clumped together in a disparate heap like a frighteningly powerful teenager's bedroom. In a sign of progress, the Democrats gained enough seats to get a majority in the House of Congress, with a number of those being first-time candidates and two of them being the first-ever Muslim women elected to the House, which almost makes me believe in karma. I mean, the only way it'd feel sweeter is if they were also constantly kneeling at the time, had part-time jobs in CNN and owned pet sharks. But for the sort of balance you get when you have an aged tangerine dinosaur clamping down a foot on your seesaw, the Republicans gained a majority in the Senate due to, for example, a majority of white men and women in Texas still voting for discarded husk Ted Cruz. Though, to be fair, this could be because they've had the story passed down the generations that if they don't do that, he'd fly around at night and eat their children. Voters in Nevada managed to elect a Republican candidate who'd actually died two weeks earlier, which the party should take note of for 2020. I mean, if they want to make sure that all their candidates are dead on the inside and outside by the general election, they'll definitely win. Definitely. Listen up, Republicans. Definitely make sure you do that. But despite the mixed bag, Donald declared the midterms a tremendous success. You know, in the way someone who's had several businesses that have all gone bankrupt deems success. I'm pretty sure it's also because while the Democrats have taken the House, Trump thinks it doesn't matter as he knows he has several other properties he can move into if needs be. At the post-election news conference, Trump berated Republican candidates who didn't accept his embrace. Not that he usually waits for consent on that sort of thing. And he proposed that both Democrats and Republicans work together on issues they both want to do something about. You know, like healthcare, where they both want to do completely different things with it. I sort of get the feeling that Trump would solve the fox-hen-grain-in-a-boat problem by putting all three in at once and just waiting to see who survives while he eats a burger. Trump had CNN White House correspondent Jim Acosta's press access revoked after an altercation during a news conference that mainly involved Acosta asking questions like he should and Trump um costering him Website for people who simultaneously want to have their own shadow deported but also have sex with it, Infowars, doctored footage of Acosta asking questions, so it looks like he assaulted the female staff member who took the microphone off him, which the White House tweeted and then revoked his access as a result. Unexpected stance for Trump, as I'd have thought seeing Acosta shout over a woman before aggressively touching her would mean that he'd be hired by the president for a cabinet role immediately. Later that same day, it was announced that face swap between an apple pie and a corpse, Jeff Sessions, was forced by Trump to resign as Attorney General, with Matthew Whitaker taking his place. Now, aside from Whitaker looking a lot like an angry penis in a suit, he was also part of a firm who scammed veterans out of their savings, and he's previously written a piece for CNN called Mueller's Investigation is Going Too Far. And now the Democrats are asking that he recuse himself from overseeing that very investigation. But wait, didn't Trump say CNN was fake news, so maybe... Whitaker loves Muller, really, and this is his way of conning the elderly president. Oh, no, wait, sorry, sorry. He only scams those who've served their country. Then, over the weekend, Trump was in Paris for the 100-year anniversary of Armistice Day, where world leaders gathered to remember those who gave their lives for their countries in the way that you were forced to do when conscription existed. French President and Den Chief Emmanuel Macron spoke out against nationalism, commenting that it stamps out a nation's moral values. So, if anything, he probably just promoted it to Trump. On the Sunday, a topless protester ran out in front of Trump's motorcade with fake peace written on her chest, which is a perfect attack on both his aggressive policies and also proving that actually the weather really wasn't that bad as she didn't even need a t-shirt. Meanwhile, back in Blighty, ministers are aiming to have a Brexit plan within 48 hours, in much the same way they've been aiming to have one for the past two years, just quicker. By plan, they mean the bit for just after we leave and then an outline on what to do next in the way that when I say I've been working on a script, I've mainly just spent four hours writing the title and putting it in several different fonts. This lack of preparation was explained last week when Brexit Secretary and Morph suit Dominic Raab told a tech conference that he hadn't quite understood how reliant the UK is on the Dover-Calais crossing and that our country is a peculiar, frankly geographic economic entity. No wonder all of this is taking so long if the head of department for exiting the European Union has only just realised basic geography. I mean, if you'd never been outside, forgotten to read anything and assumed the UK was the Pangaea of the planet with the EU just some dinghy bobbing off the coast like a floater on a string, then of course you'd think we should just get what we want out of a deal or, you know, threaten to blow in one direction really hard until they all sink. Is this a problem with all of the government? Should we see if we can delay the Brexit process by a few years just so we can quickly send everyone leaflets explaining that the Earth travels around the sun, you can't drink water from the top lip of a cup, and that dogs aren't just small horses? Oh, wow. I mean, I can't wait to see Rob's face when someone lets him know that the Eurostar goes underneath the water. More and more, I really feel like politics right now is the big-scale equivalent of when you're a kid and you realise that actually your parents are also idiots, just bigger idiots. And when you have those bigger idiots working for you, who needs any other support? Am I right? Which is why I'm sure Prime Minister and statue to remember those who won't fall despite all the hints, Theresa May, is fine with the DUP, a.k.a. the party of people who write labels on food in the fridge, said that they won't support any plan that includes a customs border in the Irish Sea. This announcement came after Whitehall leaked notes about the Prime Minister's plan to sell Brexit to sceptical ministers. Uh, they include May telling the CBI conference on November the 19th that she has delivered the referendum. Uh, which is a weird way of putting it. That doesn't sound like she's delivered the result of it, just that she's given them a bit of paper with the original questions on properly, like some sort of shitty museum artefact. A government spokesperson said that the uh, misspelling and childish language in this notes document should make it clear that it's not the actual government's thinking. What? I mean, the only thing that could make it more definitely real, apart from that description, was if it was written in comic sans with crayon-drawn examples. Anyway, this led to several politicians, including Environment Secretary and bee-stung nipple Michael Gove, demanding to see May's full legal advice on how she plans to avoid a border in Northern Ireland, because it's best to let complete non-experts have a look. And now, as a result, it's a real shame that the DUP are getting really pissy about the possibility of a border in the Irish Sea, because actually, I think, if you just imagine it a little bit... It could be great, right? Imagine. All fish can have passports, goods checks done by crabs in little hats, Ryanair to have to swap planes for small wooden rafts, and disgraced MP Liam the disgraced Fox to have to swim to all of his meetings. As if the DUP's constant disapproval as though they live in a country the government seemed to entirely forget about or something, as if that is enough to add to the feeling of rats leaving a ship that sunk years ago and then was discovered and then left at the bottom of the ocean because, hey, it's really not worth it. As if that wasn't enough, Transport Minister and face drawn on Boris Johnson's left leg Joe Johnson, resigned from the cabinet in protest about Brexit. Unlike his brother, Johnson the Younger thinks the current state of Brexit is Britain's biggest crisis since the Second World War. A scary thought, especially as it may mean that future US presidents will completely ignore us if it rains. Other Remain-backing MPs, such as Bird in Disguise as a Man, Dominic Grieve and Every Smile Hurts, Justin Greening, have said that more ministers are planning to resign from the Cabinet and Remainers will work together to defeat May's deal in Parliament as there has been a sea change. Well, of course, as they have to prep to put a border in it, don't they? Over in opposition town, Labour leader and animated tea towel Jeremy Corbyn was criticised for wearing an anorak to Remembrance Day memorials, which is what happens to him every single year. And I can't defend a man who hasn't yet realised that what he should do is just turn up in a full-sized puppy costume and waft opiates at people while singing We'll Meet Again. But aside from that silly cover rage, in an interview with German magazine Die Spiegel, Corbyn said we can't stop Brexit. You know, like an old man who warns you of a monster in the first five minutes of a film before dying horribly, and then an hour later it turns out all you needed was a high-pitched noise or a cold or something. In a later interview with Channel 4 News, Corbyn also said that a second Brexit vote isn't needed as it's time to bring people together. Sure, and how on earth are you going to do that then, Jezza? A ton of superglue? A cleverly planned Tinder con? Because as it is, his own party still can't work on one single message, with Shadow Brexit Secretary, and what if they redesigned Gordon Ramsay but using a ruler, Keir Starmer, completely contradicting Corbyn and saying that now Brexit can be stopped. So either the Labour Party has a communication skills of Vodafone at a music festival, or this is all some clever tactics so that people who want Brexit to happen will vote for Corbyn's Labour Party and people who don't can vote for Starmer's Labour Party, or more likely everyone will get fed up and wish everyone was dead. I'm hoping the party just embrace it actually and change their slogan officially to either Labour, keep em guessing, or the party line is made of silly string, or perhaps, for the many views, not the one actually coherent one. Hmm, that's... Not so catchy. And lastly, culture secretary and man-made entirely of flypaper, Jeremy Wright, says he plays with Lego to relax. That explains why his ideas about funding the arts are all on a very small scale. He has recently built a recreation of the Death Star from 4,500 bricks, which now means he can take an active part in helping Theresa May build her own. And supermarket chain Iceland has had their Christmas advert highlighting the destruction of the rainforest rejected for television broadcast on account of being too political. This is possibly because the officiating body Clearcast saw it had a cartoon orangutan in it and worried it may harm UK-US relations. Still, they're going to be really angry when they see this year's John Lewis advert is all about a lonely prime minister who asks Santa for any idea for a Brexit deal and gets visited by a man with a beard and an anorak who just tells her no and then cycles off howdy pod receptacles how are you this week did you all do remembrance day things i'm not sure what sort of stuff that would be uh, now that i'm asking i mean i wore a poppy but that is mostly just my annual way of highlighting how much i love heroin Mm-mm. lovely tasty moorish heroin i did actually i like i did watch uh, they shall not grow old uh, which is the very moving film of world war one footage that they colored in so it looked real i mean you know it was real I think I mean Peter Jackson directed it And I don't think he CGI'd in some extra bits But he's a sneaky bugger isn't he I bet there were some unnecessary flying eagles in there somewhere And I just didn't see them um, I was also very pleased of course That Peter Jackson didn't give World War 1 Five extra unneeded endings That went on way longer than the year uh, That they waited till the Treaty of Versailles But yes And what I'm saying It was um, genuinely brilliant uh, Well worth a watch Very upsetting at times And it's pretty amazing Just how anyone survived those horrors Also from a totally vacuous uh, Shallow point of view I was amazed at how much something being in colour meant that it felt real. I mean, I guess I just thought that maybe if Philip Hammond used some blusher for once, I might pay attention to him. Anyway, uh, enough of that silliness. Uh, I, I won't lie. Uh, a, I've had a glass of wine before this week's record. Don't normally do that. Bit cheeky. Also, B, um, Stan Lee has died. And that is uh, genuinely sad uh, news for someone like me who is a massive Marvel fan. That's basically uh, in my life uh, as a kid. All I dreamt about was... Uh, getting to be Spider-Man, although I realise many years later that if I was bitten by a radioactive spider, I'd probably just get blood poisoning. Have I put that joke in this show before? I probably have. It's still one of my favourites. But uh, R.I.P. Stanley, what an absolute legend! That now I'm never going to get him to cameo on this podcast, which is a bloody shame. Um, but I won't lie; uh, there is a lot going on, isn't there? Uh, you know, not just like you know in in the news. I mean, not that I regularly lie about what's happening. This isn't goddamn fake news. This is just the real news uh, told badly, and we're swears in. Yeah, not Fox News, but Fox News. Now, does that work? Doesn't work, does it? It also sounds like some really sort of awful porn parody news channel featuring only white blonde people. I'll stop it now. Look, but yes, um, this was one of those weeks where by Thursday I was thinking, hooray, the podcast will be easy to write and by Sunday I was thinking, oh no, and then considering just not watching any more news and spending all of today hiding in a cupboard. Um, And then I realised how full our cupboards are with baby crap and I had to face the music. So, um, it's okay though because here we are with this 192 hour podcast and um, hopefully I've crammed in only the good bits like a sort of um, naked bar of a podcast as opposed to a turd. I should say if you are one of the many listeners who uh, hears this show outside of the UK, uh, naked bars are these tasty healthy snacks that somehow taste of things like blueberry muffins or Bakewell tarts despite them actually only being squished fruit, and it doesn't make sense but what I do is try to eat them so I don't eat actual blueberry muffins or Bakewell tarts and instead I eat them and they're so moorish, much like the heroin in, uh, that I still then have to have the real version afterwards and become double unhealthy. Hooray for healthy snacks. And no, they're not even they're not even paying me to say these things goddamn naked. Give me money. Um. Anyway, that's my naked confessions for this week. And actually, there's not much else to say in this bit. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, review the show, blah, 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 blah. Donate all your money to me on the Patreon or Kofi sites and spend the rest of your life walking the earth barefoot in search of justice, yada, yada, yada. And get one of those massive airfield speakers and pop it outside your house and tell everyone to subscribe, blah, blah, blah. Of course... Um, that last one I could say play this podcast through your massive airfield speakers but then that wouldn't get me the extra listens I'm no fool Um, but apart from all that and all the usual do all these things that really help the podcast apart from that um, this week I would also like to plug a podcast called Silent Mark Tries His Best um, as excellent comedian and radio host Silent Mark whose name is in the title interviewed me this week and I talked for ages about all sorts of shit so if that sounds good um, and I'll be honest actually I don't think I've sold it there but uh, anyway check that out Uh, it's a lot of me talking shit. Um, also, my brother, who I always thank at the end of this show because uh, all the music for this podcast is his handiwork, um, has started his podcast up again. Uh, it's called Thanks for Trying and so far guests have been really good people like Ramesh Ranganathan, Ed Skrine, and various excellent rappers, comedians and interesting types and then he gets them all drunk and they chat. It is very good. Give that a go. Thanks for trying on all of them podcast apps, the ones I normally try and persuade you to review this show on. And um, also, what I've been told by podcast legend types is that the best way to get new listeners for your podcast as in you know as like new ones as well as you lot who are already listening i don't want to replace you heroes god no but what i mean is i want to get new listeners as well as you lot and what i should do apparently is guest on other podcasts as apparently the only people who listen to podcasts are people who already listen to podcasts which makes no sense i mean how did the first podcast listeners find out about it then cray cray but if you have another favorite podcast that you think my stupid voice could make an appearance on please ask them to book me in um i I can do it but it's more humiliating. Fan pressure is definitely the best pressure. Seriously, it works. Um, and if James Dyson wasn't such a end, I'd sell him that as a new catchphrase but I won't because I have principles. Um, okay, so on this week's show uh, as you know, I usually refrain from US politics stuff because there's so many good US politics comedy shows and podcasts out there. There's just billions. Um, but with the midterms, I thought it was time for a catch up on the exploits of the land of the free until point of purchase. So, I interviewed expert in international security and American politics from Warwick University, gorg loffelman all about the elections and populism plus sadly brexit fallout returns because there's still a constant lack of progress to tell you about or if you like you could just skip that bit and yell into a wall for 15 minutes for very much the same effect yes i said wall not well a well would at least pretend to give something back but before all of that try some of this go and try it just a little bit go on have a, just have a little bit go and try go and try An inaptronym is when someone's name is the opposite of what they are like. For example, uh, when my wife was in labour, the midwife we had was called Joy, and she was really always constantly angry. Or, you know, how Paul Young isn't. Or how my surname is Dooyeb, and yet I've definitely never done Yeb, whatever that is. Um, Similarly, though, uh, the right-wing think tank Taxpayers Alliance is a perfect inaptronym because, well, firstly, they openly state that they're a right-wing think tank who campaign for a low-tax society because they believe funding services with tax undermines the the British economy. Uh, yeah, stop undermining it by making them work. And because for years, uh, Taxpayers Alone's former director was Alexander Heath, who lived in a farmhouse in France and didn't pay any tax whatsoever you might have seen the Taxpayers Alliance on many of your least favourite political programmes over the last several years Uh, someone like Chloe Wesley who always looks like they've superimposed a child's face onto a cartoon drawing of a lion and she'll pop up on question time to add to the noise of people pointlessly yelling at each other and then kind of plug a really hard Brexit or how the NHS should just be falling apart and put in a bin Um, or you know they pop up on the panels of Ma or Daily Politics or many of the others with very little introduction other than they're from the Taxpayers Alliance and that's that but in the past week, their name has popped up in the news because of Shamir Sani, the 24 year old who whistle blew on the Vote Leave campaign's huge overspending back in March. As a retaliation for doing that, Stephen Parkinson, who's now Theresa May's advisor, looks like a Chris Addison character, and was the national organizer for Vote Leave. He issued a statement that Sonny was in a relationship with him, saying that he understood if the lines had become blurred, and outed Sonny to the world. And this was particularly dangerous because of Sonny's family in Pakistan, where people are killed for being homosexual, and it put them in danger. Um, Sonny was also working for the Taxpayers Alliance when he revealed the Vote Leave overspend, and they sacked him within days, uh, despite whistleblowers being protected by British law under the Public Interest Disclosure Act, before their founder, Matthew Elliott, who is also part of the Vote Leave campaign, and is a man who looks a lot like the sort of person who'd befriend Jude Law, kill him, then take his identity, before he appeared on the BBC to call Sani a liar and a fantasist. So, Sani sued the Taxpayers Alliance, and since that happened, they haven't really put up a protest or contested the claim, and the Electoral Commission have found that actually Sunny was correct, and Vote Leave did illegally overspend. So, they don't sound like very nice people, but who are the Taxpayers Alliance and who are they funded by? Well, for starters, uh, they're a business, not really a think tank. I mean, their own annual report says the name Taxpayers Alliance is the trading name of Taxpayers Alliance Limited, which separates them from other think tanks because they don't really elect a leader or have a board of trustees. They only have 18 members listed on their website, or whiter than a colour chart for Tippex, and they have an advisory council, whatever that means, including various right-wing journalists, economists, and directors or heads of other right-wing think tanks, including IEA and the Adam Smith Institute. There is the chairman, Andrew Ullum, and the CEO, John O'Connell, who are listed on Companies House as in control of the business, meaning it's essentially a private company. And so, if anything, every time one of them appear on the BBC, one of the presenters should be forced to follow every single one of their sentences by saying, other opinions are available. Many of the members were active in the Conservative Party, with Chairman Allen being a Tory councillor in Westminster and then leaving because apparently the party wasn't free market and individualist enough anymore. I mean, if you want somewhere that does both those things more than the Tories, you're probably best setting up your own dark world inside The Sims. Other members include a former advisor to Michael Gove, so they obviously aren't an expert in their field or he wouldn't have listened to them, and a Tory campaigner that helped run the Margaret Thatcher Centre at Buckingham University, which I guess is the exact opposite of a community centre. So, the Conservative connections are obvious and perhaps unsurprising, but their donor list is incredibly secret. In the past, little bits have been revealed, including that Sir Anthony Bamford donates to them and he's the tycoon that owns JCB, so I guess his dad's Bruce Lee. They're also given free offices in Westminster by property multi-millionaire Dave David Alberto and various businesses groups of the Midlands Industrial Council who said back in 2009 that they donated because they couldn't get any of their concerns heard about tax money being wasted but they donated to the Taxpayers Alliance who brought it up in their constant and extensive media coverage and it ended up on parties' agendas. And all of those people also all donate to the Conservative Party too. Hmm Curiouser and Curiouser When he was a chairman, Matthew Elliott denied that the TPA were a Conservative Front organisation. But with backing from secret donors, the few who've been revealed, as I said, also donating to the Conservatives and who use their donations to lobby policies that then get noticed by the Conservatives, and with links to other right-wing think tanks and the Vote Leave movement, it doesn't really seem like Matthew Elliott was telling the truth especially when all these groups got together to slur Shamir Sani when he spoke the truth about them and they were given a platform to do so openly by major news networks. So it really does raise questions about if we're being told everything about the guests that we see on these politics shows, especially when their line is super hard Brexit to the extent that they're willing to back law-breaking to get it, that the NHS should get less money, less tax should be spent on public services and that there should be less welfare and all of that then influences parties. So if there's a Conservative Brexiteer on a Question Time panel and a member of the Taxpayers Alliance as well, then for balance the BBC should have two remain Labour MPs or, you know, maybe just several people who actually pay tax. Or at least just introduce the Taxpayers Alliance as an organisation that doesn't want to pay tax, is funded by some shady donors, backs illegal spending and is run by two blokes who don't like poor people and look like stock pictures of men who've tried to force themselves on their cleaner. Shamir Sani continues to speak out about everything that happened to him and the sort of forces that are behind the Taxpayers Alliance. And so hopefully, hopefully, this may lead to some sort of inquiry and that would find out exactly where all these groups come from. Hopefully, a public inquiry, as that would really, really piss them off. What I like about US politics is every time I think things in the UK are bad, I can look over there for a weekly hit of schadenfreude. I mean, we have Brexit, they have pointless gun violence. We have racism and xenophobia, they have it too, but with extra pointless gun violence. We have a blindly confident leader who's driving the country to disaster, and the US have the same, but worse, because theirs can't even talk like a grown-up, and they also have pointless gun violence. But last week, the US midterm elections happened. You know, the ones between the big ones. The ones that no one outside the US has ever paid attention to before because we don't really understand how it all works. You know those ones. The ones that last time meant Obama couldn't do anything for ages because loads of Republicans got in and then blocked everything he did, but none of it mattered if you live abroad because it just seems so cool whenever he said things. But now, now we're all paying attention because suddenly, as America hurtles ever more closely towards a Cormac McCarthy novel, and no, not the long one about the horses, and yes, and yes, it is already like a country for old men but that book was about it being no country for old men. And no, look, no one else. Look, look. I just meant the road, all right? Stop it, literary nerds. As America heads towards something Vigo Mortensen would have to walk around angrily, and yes, he walks around angrily everywhere. Stop it. All eyes, look, all I'm saying is all eyes turn to the US to see if the Democrats might make any sort of comeback that could mean in the future the country could go back to having a leader that still bombs other countries but at least has a nice smile while doing it. And as the Democrats took the House of Representatives, it showed that there is retaliation against Trump's presidency, but also as Republicans took the Senate, it's not as much of one as anyone who understood that Get Out was a horror movie and not a how-to guide wanted. So what do these results mean? What do Trump and other populist popularity around the globe mean as well? And seriously, how did a dead person win in Nevada? Oh no, wait, I've just checked our House of Lords for comparison. Yeah, no, it makes sense now. To answer the first two questions and more, I spoke to Gorg Loffelman, who is a research fellow on international security and US politics at Warwick University. Gorg has previously written a book called American Grand Strategy Under Obama on how the Obama doctrine challenged the consensus of American exceptionalism. And he's now working on a project called The Enemy Inside the Gates, Anti-Elite Hostility and the Political Agency of the Everyday in Europe and the USA, all about contemporary populism. So, he seemed like the perfect person to translate the results and their possible aftermath into language us British types could understand. Oh, and before we start, a very, very quick... Okay, so uh, don't worry. It's not a big excuse excuses. This interview all sounds okay, I think, uh, apart from a few clunks and paper rustles here and there because Gorg very kindly prepped and had notes. So, you know, a few clunks for better answers. Yeah, I'll take that. Thanks, Bob. But what I wanted to tell you is that for some reason, uh, this is just for your own enjoyment, for some reason, the recording, when I saved it, sped up my voice. uh, So it sounded like Gorg was being interviewed by a chipmunk. So, look, I've fixed it. It doesn't sound like that now, but I'm going to pop a clip of uh, the sped-up version at the very end of this podcast episode because let's face it it's very very funny um anyway i hope you enjoy or whatever the feelings called when you get informed and then feel a bit scared here is Cork. okay so uh, according to trump the election was a success for him but according to democrats it was also a success for them um what are we what are we to make of all this is this all politicking or were they somehow both correct
1: both can, like, lay claim to victory, I guess. My, my personal takeaways, I think, are three. I think the first one who really won here is, I think, American democracy, you know, and um, this idea that political power really resides with the people, that is, the people who get to decide at the ballot box, um, they get to decide and change political majorities, they get to ultimately decide... Um, who is in charge, who is in power, and not populists and, you know, presidents and parties that claim that they are the sole voice of the people, that only they represent the American people and everybody else is illegitimate. So I think that already was, you know, a big victory for liberal democracy itself, um, if you will. And maybe also, like, maybe the most important signal that, you know, American democracy still works. It's under strain, it's under stress, but it still works. And I think the second winner is is the Democrats. Um, I mean, the blue wave wasn't exactly a tsunami. Um, they managed to win the House, and that's no small feat um, since uh, having been sort of like in opposition in the House since 2010, um, 10, I believe. Um, But this expectation that, you know, they would take the Senate, that there's a wholesale repudiation of Trump's policies, his rhetoric, his style, that there's a sort of like the resistance is standing up, that I think didn't quite happen. For example, when you look at the 2010 congressional elections, um, there was a massive um, Obama called it a shellacking of the Democrats, right, where the Republicans took, I think, 60 seats when they when they took over the House. So um, the Democrats have won and they have won the House, but it wasn't quite as big as a victory as maybe some would have thought. But nonetheless... Um, with a majority in the House, they have now vastly increased powers in terms of, um, you know, commissioning subpoenas, congressional investigations of Trump, his business dealings, the Russian collusion. Um, so they can really go after him with a lot more vigor now. And of course, they also have a chance to work on policy um, proposals that they were running on: healthcare, making sure that people with pre-existing conditions, uh, you know, don't get kicked off. Uh, infrastructure and jobs. It was a second uh, priority, and also um, electoral reform, campaign finance, gerrymandering, and there might be some scope there for you know bipartisan cooperation. Um, how that might look under Trump, it's probably difficult to tell at this point. And I think the third one is, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the Republicans have increased their majority in the Senate, and. While the Democrats have really done well in urban areas and with suburban voters, there's really still a staunch support base in rural areas um, for Republicans and for Donald Trump. And we have seen this in a lot of these you know, st- um, states now where the Republicans have now picked up Senate seats. So I think it's kind of like a three-way split between w- win for democracy, win for the Republicans, and win for the Democrats.
0: Right, so so they were kind of all right in a way. Um, Go to uh, I want to ask you about all three of those things, but the for listeners that are uh, unaware of U.S. politics, and I I am one of them actually. I I find U.S. politics very confusing at times. But the the Senate obviously is is now Republican, and I know that's partly because there weren't that many Senate seats up for election. In this round, anyway. So, I I, some things I've read said that the Democrats were unable to would have been unable to get a majority, regardless. Um, But do they they control the? How does it work? Does the the Senate can block things that the House put through, or is it uh, a bit of both?
1: Yeah, so it's 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 essentially a bit similar to the UK system, where you have the House of Lords. So you have a two you have a two chamber you have a two chamber system, and um, with the American Constitution's with the um, system of checks and balances. Um, You both have a veto power of the president against um, legislation that is passed by Congress, but before you actually get to the point, um, the Senate and the House have to agree on a piece of legislation before it can actually be sent to uh, the president, for example. So what you, of course, now have is that two different parties have a majority in each uh, one of these two uh, chambers. And this is actually not unusual in, in, in American politics. This was quite you know frequently uh, the case. So, But what this means is that, yes, exactly, when a democratically-led House passes a resolution, any kind of legislation, this can essentially be blocked in the Senate. And vice versa, if there's a resolution in the Senate and um, the House votes against it, it will again not pass, uh, pass into law. So there is, a huge, um, there is a huge potential here for basically completely grid, complete gridlock in, in the American system of uh, government, which is essentially designed that there is actual bipartisan co- cooperation. And this is how the system is supposed to work. But with this extreme polarization, this extreme hostility under Trump, where basically his opponents are the enemies of the American people, this makes it very difficult to, you know, reach any kind of uh, cooperation. But I think some of these things, like for example, health care, um, you know, like infrastructure and jobs, like some things that Trump himself and the Republicans have endorsed, there might be a way where actually the Senate and the where the Senate and the House could um, work together. One of the most important things is uh, impeachment. For example, right? So there was a lot. Of, there was a lot of talks about impeaching Trump. So the Democrats now go after Trump, uh, impeach Trump, and they can actually pass a resolution now in the House to impeach Trump. But in order to impeach a sitting president, you also would need uh, 60 votes in the Senate, and so the Democrats don't have that. The same happened to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was actually impeached in the House but because they didn't have the votes in the Senate, he wasn't removed from office, but he was actually impeached with a, House, with a House resolution. So the interesting thing is, would the Democrats go for like a symbolic political stunt, if you will, that actually doesn't have any effect because they don't have the votes in the Senate, or will they say this would poison the well, if you will, so much that actually we wanna get some policy things through That's what our voters care about. We want to work on infrastructure, we want to work on jam healthcare, all of these things, and see if we can work with Republicans rather than going for this, um, you know, symbolic kind of like bringing the hammer down.
0: Right. But I'm guessing it also could allow Trump to blame everything that happens on the Democrats blocking it. And that kind of gives him more power next time
1: round. Really? I mean, absolutely. I mean, he is he is a, somebody that has like uh, you know, made scapegoating its own its own art form, if you will. Uh, there's all there's enemies. China is ripping us off. Uh, NATO is ripping us off. Like the, his world is already full of enemies. And I think just the other day he said essentially, if the Democrats come after me now with the new majority in the house, I will take a warlike position. Um, We're not exactly sure what that means if he like, uh, you know, holds himself up in the oval with a shotgun but there is a huge Huge potential here for complete gridlock of the American government, which basically leads to that there is no legislation that's being passed. And again, you know, you had that under Obama, essentially. Um, Towards the end of the presidency, Obama just had to pass executive orders from everything to curtailing drilling in sort of national uh, parks in the United States to um, certain uh, migration initiatives, because the Republicans who controlled Congress would not work with him on anything whatsoever because their only mission was to basically thwart and block and oppose um, whatever policy obama um pursued and we might now see that with the democrats and trump i mean there's a lot of acrimony and a lot of real yeah antipathy here between those two camps
0: yeah absolutely it's a like you said, when he said he was going to create a war. like I think you also said, if you investigate me, I'll investigate you, which I thought, well, that's probably not that scary for them. <laughs> it's a really le- rubbish threat. Um, but there you go.
1: He might, he, might, he, he might bring up Hillary Clinton's emails again. <laughs> Who knows? <There> you
0: <laughs> go. Or, or Benghazi. We don't know what, what it could be. Um, but, uh, just to uh, go back a little bit, you were saying that obviously the election is um, a, a very, you know, democracy wins really, which is very exciting. Um, because I, I, I suppose, you know, we've had the thing with the... Not just with trump 's election, but previously um when president's been elected and it's the um the, the, the oh now my brain 's going the, the the college system um is you know overrides the popular vote um so can democracy ever really win in the states when they 've still got this very Archaic system, um, and and obviously there's there's voter suppression and things like that. So does this election show that they're kind of surpassing that and going towards maybe sort of fairer voting?
1: No, I think I think there's definitely a big discussion in the United States, for example, about the Electoral College, right? And and shouldn't the American president be voted uh, elected but directly by the people, essentially? And it's really interesting, you know, when you say actually it is a bit democracy curtailed, which is actually why the founding fathers put that electoral system uh, in there because they were kind of, like, afraid of, like, the people, right? Um, So on the one side, they were afraid of, you know, another king, uh, a tyrant on the throne, but they were also afraid of sort of mob rule and the people sort of being easily swayed by, by demagogues and easily being sort of led astray. And so they've put in these these safety uh, features if you will sort of have like an in-between steps it was the electoral college or right? it was the bicameral system the Senate for example um, senators served for six years not for two years like in the house and they were also seen as a bit was the example of Rome um, as a sort of more senior advisory kind of a uh, kind of body and um, if you would change the Constitution Um, To get rid of the electoral college the hurdles for this are so massive Um, a two-thirds majority in both houses of Congress and then a two-thirds majority of states ratifying that I don't really think it is realistic to expect um, You know a reform of the system um, as it uh, as it stands but even with the established system that we have seen in the recent years in terms of curtailing voters, in terms of limiting access to votes, you know, um, having to bring photo ID uh, for voting, uh, curtailing absentee ballots, curtailing um, early voting, um, purging voter registration rolls of, of, uh, of voters, and predominantly targeting you know ethnic minorities, predominantly targeting groups that Usually vote more for the Democrats and measures that have been, been taken in in Republican states. Um, I think that is a really worrying development, the sort of like undermining of, of liberal democracy. And, you know, that's also something we see in, in, in Hungary under Orban. That's something we see in, in Poland uh, with the independent judiciary sort of un, being under threat. So I think this is not just an American story, but this idea of liberal democracy, sort of a being under strain, being under attack um, is, is really a story that goes around the globe and you know, when you look at Trump and Trump being really an ardent populist and how he attacks the press how he attacks the judiciary, how he basically attacks everybody that does not uh, conform to his worldview ideology, he is not somebody that respects checks and balances whatsoever, he basically wants complete um, authority and he um Sort of defines his role of the American president, almost a bit of like as a king, essentially, an emperor that has no clothes. But nonetheless, he has, a, I think, a very authoritarian understanding of, of politics, essentially.
0: Yeah, it's it's um, it's really I mean, it's interesting that in his speech, he spoke of sort of. Bipartisanship and unity, and and then went on to attack the people that didn't want his, imbr- you know, the Republicans that didn't want his embrace, and then attack the Democrats, and it it just it, it felt to me like, can we see unity or bipartisanship? happening while he's still in charge anyway whether that's in the politics or in you know there were massive divides in who voted uh republican democrats i think it still shows that many uh sort of white men and women vote and white suburban uh votes went to republicans um urban areas more diverse uh background people went for democrats are we is this just going to be divided for the near future is there any way of bringing them together
1: I think um there there is some some studies that the the polarization in the United States in terms of voter behavior has um gotten ever larger and ever more pronounced since the nineteen sixties, you know, since the since the culture wars. And it has reached really a high point under the Obama administration and, and now with uh, with Trump. Um and in particular that the Republican Party has become ever more ideological, ever more um, right-wing in its in its policy positions, to the point where, you know, a generally accepted fact like climate change is actually disputed in the mainstream of the Republican uh, Party, for example, and in terms of, yeah, you know, a nativist anti-migration stance, and so Trump really has hijacked the Republican Party and moved it still further, um, still further to the right, and at the same time we have a push of the Democrats now becoming more progressive, more liberal, um, we had a big intake of of women um, as uh, members of the House of Representatives. Um, the first two Muslim women entering entering Congress now. The first two Native American um, women, uh, Congresswomen, and um, a more diverse coalition. I think in the in the Democratic Party, which is also no, more reflective now of their more um, yeah multi ethnic, multicultural voter base, um, right. So I I don't really see this this polarization in the United States. Um, coming, coming to a close, this gap closing. I think where the Republican Party is and the demographic that it represents, this especially white rural angry vote, you know, full of anxieties and and fears. And there, the yeah, the other face uh, of the coming America, right? In by two thousand forty-five, we will see the United States a minority majority society, meaning that. Um, African Americans, Asian Americans, and Latin Americans together will actually be the majority of of the population, and this Republican Party essentially has nothing to offer whatsoever to to these uh, voters. Quite the opposite, actually, actively drives them drives them away. So I think this wretch is probably here to stay, and Trump r- tried to reach across the aisle. Um, With Chuck Schumer and with Nancy Pelosi on, on migration, I think last year, and it lasted about for three days, and then he blew up again. And so I don't really see him characterly and also ideologically as somebody who can actually do bipartisanship. I mean, Trump lives in a world where in order for Trump to win, everybody else has to lose um this is for him the art (laughs) the art of the deal so i think he's probably the worst kind of president to like attempt to sort of like bipartisanship but he maybe he wants to demonstrate that he can uh that he is a deal maker i mean we we shall see but i think we shouldn't take too much stock in that
0: is there then a danger though because if he you know one of the circumstances if he can't work together assuming that you know, nothing happens over the next few years and he doesn't manage to pass it off as blame onto Democrats and maybe maybe a Democrat is elected next time, wouldn't that then cause a kind of infuriation amongst the people who do support him that it had gone back to him? Because I, I know that it's something you've written about, haven't you, that his presidency was part of a, a growing anger that had been happening for ages by people who feel they've been left out or people that wanted a, a change no matter what that change was because they weren't already happy you know it sort of feels I from my point of view I can't work out where they're going to (laughs) go where where this could go that's that's safe for the future of American politics
1: now I I think this is this is really like a global problem and this is yeah some research that I'm doing at at, at Warwick University at the moment with with this project called the enemy inside the gates that we we have this wave of populist politics in in Europe um, obviously you know the Front National in in France we have the in Germany. Poland, Viktor Orbán in Hungary, we, hop, we had the the Brexit Leave campaign, which um, had a strong sort of like anti migration, um, you know, uh, argument and this idea of taking taking back control, um, but also you know Brussels is is the enemy. It, it shackles us. It, it it keeps us down. It keeps us from our uh, destiny. And this language of fear and this language of Um, There are enemies out there that betray you, you, the true people, you, you know, the the ordinary guy on the street, Um, you, small-town America, they are the banks, they are the elites, they are, you know, the media, the EU, Um, and they are essentially ripping you off, and they are, um, you know, your manufacturing jobs are going to China because they are outsourcing. they are bringing, you know, they're opening the borders to migrants. Um, they are soft on crime, and this this really toxic brew of sort of fear and anxiety and threats um, is is used by by people like Trump to to example gain power and to. Uh, to um, yet yeah, to make to make it into power, but I think then they actually don't have any policy solutions once they are in there, right? Um, because what populists do is they basically tell people, "We understand your anger and their sol- because, uh, anger and fear about you know, globalization, about technological change, about cultural change, demographic change, mass migration." And our solution is to sort of like, you know, turn the clock back to the 1950s. And, um, you know, I mean, when you hear Trump talk about America, it's like a black and white, you know, lassie where there is the family and the farm and and everything, everybody is eating apple and everybody is eating apple pie. and But this is not like how America looks today. And I think it's the same with sort of like Brexit Britain, like global Britain, where it's this kind of like neo Victorian uh, kind of a bit of a fantasy. And these sort of like retrograde fantasies then crash against reality because we're living in an ever more interconnected world with technology, with communication, you know, with mobility. So, this idea that we can sort of like take back control as in sort of like recreating this, this idealized past that never quite existed as it did in these speeches and ideas by populists. That is I think the great danger. And I think this is where the big disappointment comes. And I think, you know what has Trump actually achieved, for example, in these two years in, in, in office? He had two Supreme Court nominations, which is arguably like a big a big deal, and he had a tax reform. That was like literally the only policy outcome after after two years. So I think populists really struggle once they are actually in power to make their ideas real. I mean, let's have a look at the Brexit negotiations, right? It was the easiest deal in history and now, oh wow, you know, we're talking about stockpiling food and medicine. So I think this is some of these um, difficulties, but at the same time, populists also touch a nerve about genuine anxieties and we've done a a project in Warwick, where we look at um, different groups of people in Europe and what are their fears about migration, for example. I think there are genuine concerns about mass migration. Um, And I think liberal democracy needs to do a better job in responding to these fears about, you know, globalization, about jobs moving away, about, you know, digitization, all of these uh, things. And they haven't, they've done a very poor job in that. And I think they have done a very poor job in sort of Speaking to people, not just, you know, rationally and from this vein of being the expert and of being, you know, GDPs and and statistics, but actually, you know, taking people at their emotional, um, but in a positive way, not like populists like Trump do, who always speak about fear and, and, and hatred.
0: By the time you hear this, uh, if you're listening later in the week, the government may have agreed on the terms of the UK's Brexit exit, which is a sentence I both did and didn't enjoy saying. And it may have been presented to the EU because the British are known for their sense of humour. I mean, you know, sorry, for them to sign off at a special summit at the end of November, not just to laugh at and point and stuff. Uh, bear in mind, obviously, this is just the first little bit that will be signed off on. The first teeny tiny bit of a shit tonne of other things that need to happen for the UK to function post-Brexit, you know, such as trade deals, implementing laws, immigration laws... and. And you know, whether to publicly hang, burn or set fire to anyone who's bilingual. Sorry, I mean, uh oh God, uh, ignore that bit. So, forgetting all that, that, you know, and that could be terrible and no one's planned anything for it, and ignoring for a second that everyone ever dislikes all of May's proposed plans so far because they're either too crazy, not crazy enough, or let's face it, just shit, or... You know, also ignoring that Labour still don't know what they want like the chidi undergone year of politics. Ignoring all of that, here's where we are right now. Cabinet are having a crunch meeting. Right now, currently, they're having a crunch meeting. And sadly, that's not when they discuss which are the best crisps, or maybe not sadly, as I guess that would take ages and then there'd be no time for Brexit chat, unless they mainly talked about how great Tatoes are and how post-Brexit they'll be harder to get, except not really, because they do make them in Northern Ireland as well. Hmm. What it does mean, though, this crunch meeting, is that they're trying to come to an agreement on the Brexit strategy and plan. Also, how to sell that plan once they've come up with it, which, according to the link notes from Whitehall, involve May telling Brexiteers that if they don't support it, they'll be responsible for a no-deal, and telling Remainers that she sought for the closest possible deal, but that Britain won't be part of the customs union forever. Basically, playing both sides like a goddamn hustler. We've all seen those US teen movies. May will be found out, and everyone will team up and humiliate her at the school prom by pouring punch over her dress. You'll see, Theresa. You'll see. Part of the leak plan also suggested that May wouldn't admit to ditching the Chequers plan, but would signal privately that she would allow a pivot towards a different landing zone, which is a great metaphor, unless the Brexit she's worked out doesn't allow planes to land in the first place. The big part of these talks is, of course, the Irish border and the backstop, because Brexit bods like Dominic, if we live on an island, how come there's no palm trees, Raab, want to be able to end a backstop so it doesn't become permanent, as if a Conservative government isn't a permanent stop backwards anyway. And legal bods, like Attorney General Geoffrey Cox, say you probably can't do that, and oh god, why is this still happening, why oh why? I added the last bit, sort of paraphrasing. Then, of course, the DUP don't want a border in the sea because God hates shrimp, probably. Ireland and the EU will only accept a backstop that everybody likes because they're crowd-pleasers, and by everybody, they probably mean all main countries rather than individuals, as I don't think they actually give a fuck what Dominic Raab thinks when he's still amazed that sometimes the sky changes colour. But Raab, along with Attorney General Geoffrey Cox, are expected to write a draft backstop with a mutual way to end it included within that. But then Raab was also expected to know how basic geography works... So who the fuck knows what's going to happen? Michael Gove has asked if he can see the legal advice that will go with the backstop draft so ministers can be covered if they go along with it because there's nothing like showing a former journalist and now environment minister legal advice for some sort of reassurance. And, of course, the EU still want a backstop to the backstop, which the DUP don't want, because then they'd still be part of the customs union and have to share things and be nice. But all this has to be agreed by the Cabinet, published, signed off at an EU summit in late November, and then presented to MPs in December, where they all might tell May to go do one hard, and then we'll only have three months for it to sort it all out all over again. Will she manage it? Will anyone actually do anything? Will Dominic Raab ever leave his home again, or will he be too scared that if he does, he might fall into the sea? Who knows, but what is for certain is that lots of people who don't have a clue will keep saying stupid things out loud, as if to show the world that we'll have prime export in idiots if they ever fancy hiring anyone that will make their biggest twat look very, very smart in comparison. First up on Stupid Comments this past week is split-end and somehow former Brexit Secretary David Davis because it seems to get that role, you really have to barely function as a human. Davis said that a Brexit no-deal will cause some hiccups and bumps in the road, but it's nothing to worry about. If you compare that to him back in February when he said it wouldn't be like Mad Max, that means it's somewhere between a dystopian nightmare and an involuntary reflux. I mean, to name but a few things that have already happened. People are stockpiling food and medicines, Manston Airport in Kent is being kept open in case it's needed as an additional lorry park for customs delays, and British Airways is going to become a Spanish company, which worries me as they may try to open a sports bar and then go bankrupt. So either Davis has not seen Mad Max, or his hiccups are hugely violent, and he should really, really be very terrified by them. We've heard Rob's special moment already this week, so now let's head to the other stupid comment Bye. Liam Fox is a total disgrace, Liam Fox what a waste of space, Liam Fox just look at his face like a rubbish contestant on the chase, claiming expenses, taking his friend all over the place, Liam Fox what a total disgrace, Liam Fox what a total disgrace, like a bad document you can't erase, like when someone only types in lowercase, Liam Fox what a total disgrace, Liam Fox what a total disgrace. Disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox has said that the UK must have the power on its own to end any backstop customs accord with the EU. How do you not even understand what a backstop is? How can you stop something if you haven't put in place the things it's there to protect you from? Get in the sea, Fox. Go build a border using Jeremy Wright's Lego and get in the fucking sea. Ah, oh, that's better. Sorry, I needed that. That was just for me. Anyway, as I'm recording this, May has said that negotiations are now in the end game. so who knows what things will be like next week. Let's just hope that endgame is at risk, scrabble or trivial pursuit. Either way, it's likely something will come out of it, even if it's just that Dominic Raab has been admitted to A&E because he's got a game piece lodged up his nose. And now, back to Gorge. I- is there? I mean... Because it's very much the same with Brexit. You know, we've got this thing in in, in you know in, in Britain at the moment where we both want to be shut away and put ourselves first, but also somehow want to be trading with the globe while insulting the people we're already trading with. And and with, with Trump, Trump's all America first, but also still wants to be the world's police and still wants to you know bring in the Iran sanctions as withdraw the Russian nuclear treaty. Can you do both things at the same time? Can you somehow withdraw and yet still be a global? power is that does how does that work i
1: think i think the united states will you know absolutely remain a, a global power in the sense that you know they are still the largest uh, economy um, for probably a couple of years and the take about china um, their military is uh, by far the most advanced most capable military in in the world so just by these measures economic resources and military strength at uh, the united states is a superpower and the only superpower But do they actually want to be a global leader anymore? And I think that is where Trump is really a disruption, because for the last 70 years, so basically ever since World War II, when the United States really sort of emerged as this global power... The idea was that the United States creates sort of a rules-based international order, you know, the NATO alliance, um, support for European integration, free trade, support for freedom and democracy, and... um, of course, there have been, you know, flaws and, and setbacks, and many times America sort of failed in its own, um, you know, stated ambition to be the leader of the free world. You know, Vietnam, Watergate, and all of these things. But there was always this firm belief that the United States is the leader of a free world. That. America's national security depends on the prosperity and security of of others, of its partners, of its um, alliances, and America really has a obligation to lead the world and to lead international cooperation to tackle, you know, to set the agenda in terms of for things like climate change. Right? Obama was was a really driving force behind that, and with Trump, you have somebody who has a fundamentally different worldview. His worldview is it's a zero-sum world, it's a zero-sum game. In order for America to win, everybody else has to lose. And everybody has essentially been ripping the United States off. All of these security arrangements, these partnerships, the NATO alliance, basically America pays for the defense of everybody else. Um, America is, you know, supplying everybody else with, with security. Um, Everybody's taking America for a ride, huge trade deficits. Um, and now, under Trump, America comes first. All of these arrangements. Um, are sort of being challenged in questions. And, of course, there is a lot of pushback because the national security establishment, the foreign policy establishment, um, they are still very much believing in the traditional role of the United States. And if you read the book by Bob Woodward, Fear, about Trump in the White House, um, there's passages where there's a letter that uh, the United States will terminate their free trade agreement with South Korea, and they're actually stealing it from his desk so he cannot sign it because... That free trade agreement is also part of the security partnership. It, among other things, allows the United States to detect a nuclear missile within fifteen seconds when they are in South Korea, rather than uh, fifteen minutes from uh, from Alaska. But um, Trump does not believe in multilateralism. You know, alliances, the, the idea of cooperation. We've seen this domestically and internationally, uh, it is it is the same. It just fundamentally does not exist in his in his worldview. So there's a a really big departure in the sense that America is absolutely still a power, but is but it is no longer a global uh, leader. And even when there is, you know, like for example, Secretary of Defense Mattis, like he is sort of like a steady hand, very much in this traditional vein of American foreign policy. Um, so there is Limits to um, to how fundamental this course correction is. It's not completely isolationist yet. America is still, you know, in NATO. They have not withdrawn from from NATO, for example. But Trump's rhetoric has produced a lot of uncertainty because actually nobody really knows anymore what the United States stands for. Um, what will it do? I mean, when I think Montenegro joined the NATO, or joined NATO, Trump said, "Oh, Montenegro is a very warlike people, and uh, we should we die for Montenegro." So this idea of uh, you know that America defends others is there for others. There is a collective responsibility, collective security. All of these ideas are completely anathema to Trump, and um, now. You know, we have, for example, this was the Iran deal. The Europeans are now continuing with, with the deal, and America is ripping it up. And um, if you are a company, you can like, say, hmm, my business with America is probably 85% of my, of my portfolio, and, like, Iran is, like, 8%. So I have to, like, go along with America because not I accept their leadership, but because the sheer economic weight is so big, right? So Trump uses power... But he is not a leader in the sense that he convinces others of, of, of the American position. And what we could call American hegemony, this America's leadership role, it was both about America's power, but it was also about America setting an example and convincing others to go along with it, right? If this would have been an American empire that only befits the United States, this would have crumbled uh, sort of decades ago, but it was actually for the mutual benefit of all involved, for example, NATO. And so Trump is really the one who questions all of that, rips all of this up, and you know, we have this discussion now in the EU, like I think Macron just said, we need a European army, we need to get, become more independent, so there is a, Trump is a, is a disruptor, it is a disrupting force and he sets a lot of things in motion in international politics, um, and I think it is really sort of the the end of the the post Cold War era, and we're like moving now into the into a very dynamic sort of multipolar setting where these old sort of certainties, the West, you know, what does the West stand for? What is America's role? A lot of this is now all in, in flux and in question.
0: Well, yeah, so it's interesting you're saying that. The uh, Europe has kind of kept the Iran deal, and that's in big contrast, for example, to uh, you know Iraq, uh, sort of seventeen years ago. Whenever when when the US said right, we're invading Iraq, we're doing this, and the whole rest of the Western world went right, we're with you, regardless of you know how it later proved to be very wrong. But the uh, but with this, with I- Iran seems like it's going to just be a solo m- mission from Trump, and not anyone else. And I
1: think uh, it will also be uh, the only one out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement. So the United States will be the only. Uh, country of I think over 200 signatories who will not part will not be part of this. So again, it's 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 America first is actually America alone, and it does not try to build a coalition. It does not try to convince anybody of their position because they actually don't really have a position, right? I mean, Trump doesn't have a position on climate change. He wants to bring back coal, beautiful clean coal, that is his climate uh, plan, and about Iran. N- nothing in the american position basically says is this actually a superior you know proposal to keep um iran from a nuclear weapon or to avoid another war in the middle east and the answer and the answer is no and this is why um obama said you know it might be a bad deal but it's the best deal that we have and trump absolutely has not offered anything as an alternative or like a superior alternative
0: Sure, it's just more that Obama brought it in So he doesn't want it That's <laughs> what it does seem like um, Yeah, I think
1: I think it's quite pathological I think everything that Obama does and, Or Obama did Trump seems to have this pathological Yeah, almost Um uh, this 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 ins- in- insane notion that he has to undone everything that Obama did, everything was Obama's uh, name on. And, of course, Obama made fun of Trump during the White House correspondence Dinner in, I think, 2014, which some people say actually enraged Trump to the point that he decided to run for the president. A couple of jokes less at that dinner. Who knows how the world would look today? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: no, it's really sort of... Something uh, worrying for all (laughs) us comedians out there that this could uh, we could have started many a terrifying sort of uh, authoritarian um, by accident. Um, But so so now we've got the US is kind of on its own, and as as you mentioned before, the, the problem with this populism is that there's all these promises that they can't keep, and there's all these promises that won't eventually won't play out to the benefit of the people. I mean, in the UK, we don't know you know whatever happens with brexit we know it's uh, predicted now or all reports say it's going to be worse than it was before at least in in e- economically and for people's welfare and work wage so so do you with this global populism is there a point where it's going to have to diminish as people realize it's not what it was or do you see it rising more first or or, or is there something else that you see replacing it where where do we go next
1: i mean i think i think it will remain i think it will remain a force because populism does touch on grievances and on insecurities um, and anxieties and fears that are that are real you know for example um, we have a growing income inequality we have a massive divide between the one percent and the 99 percent we have a massive accumulation of wealth um at at the very top um something that we haven't really seen since the 1920s or even like the Gilded age in the 19th century Um, we have a massive disruption that will come with digitization in terms of you know jobs simply just disappearing and not just you know classic manufacturing jobs in, in, in Western countries, but, um, you know, middle-class jobs, even things like like accounting, even th- even like university lecturers uh, can be replaced by AI, as I've been told. And s- <laughs> so, uh, I, I just saw, saw a thing today. The first AI news anchorman went online in in, in China, which is sort of like slightly dystopian in slightly like a neuromancer Gibson kind of uh, setting. But populism touches on, on real fears and real concerns and, and real anxieties. Um, and they are saying that liberal democracy has not found a solution to these problems. And I think they're right on that. You know, look, Let's look at the global financial, the, the global financial crisis, the euro crisis, the, the migration crisis. All of these crises are in a certain way sort of like still ongoing or still unsolved. Right? Um, with Italy uh, you know we might look at the next euro crisis around the corner Um, migration, um, Europe is still as divided as ever about how to respond um, to to migration. Um, Brexit even I think if a deal will come it will probably remain a a massively divisive issue in in, in UK in UK politics Um, but again I think Populists don't don't have the answers to the problems that they're, they're that they're pointing to, because in the end I think populists are not really interested in you know policy solutions. Populists are interested in um, using these things for their own for their own gain. I mean I look at populists like Donald Trump, like Boris Johnson, and I think they play. On on that piano of these of these anxieties and fears, but I think they play on it for their own political gain and to propel themselves further or to propel themselves into office, and I think people will get disillusioned um, with populists when populists fail to deliver on their on their promises. But of course, the 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 fear is, of course, that people will become like disillusioned with with politics com, uh, completely, right? And I think there is a real there is a real um, uh, problem here. Um, but on the other side, Brexit, for example, and what happened with Brexit in the UK, it was actually a big um, positive development in terms of like hostility to the EU went went down massively, basically in every other EU member state, because the sentiment was essentially. Well, you know, the EU is not perfect, but Jesus, we don't want to get into this kind of mess. So I think so I <laughs> so, sometimes I I think sort of like yeah, when when populists sort of are seen as these this, as the emperor without any clothes on, you know. Um and I, I think people will see, "Oh, you know, this guy is actually like a Charlatan." And I think, you know, somebody like Trump is absolutely that. He's just a Charlatan essentially. Um, so that's uh, that's my hope that um, that people will sort of um, see behind the see behind the curtain a bit like the Wizard of Oz and actually it's it's just it's just smoke and mirrors essentially.
0: Sure. So it's either people will wake up and realise it or just general apathy. uh will return. It's it's slightly bleak either way. Um, well. Uh, uh, my final question is something that i want to ask uh, i ask everyone on the show um is that, uh, apart from yourself and assuming that the listeners don't just now go to ai lecturers as they can um who would you recommend uh, that they read up on or follow for good kind of us political coverage and research who do you go to for like who do you go to for information i
1: mean with with sort of like running running coverage and commentary you can never go wrong with with the washington post and and the new york times i think there is some really brilliant journalism being done, you know, investigative journalism on the Trump administration and in particular in this really acrimonious um, relationship between Trump and the media I think it's really it's really good to keep an eye on. Um, I think Vox, um, I think they're doing really interesting, uh, really interesting segments on things like partisan polarization, migration for example. Um, they will oftentimes have you know short videos, um, getting in touch with other political scientists in in the United States. so those those are really um useful, um useful sources. and um, one book, um maybe on this sort of, you know, who are the Trump voters and why are they so angry? Um it's a book called Hillbilly Elegy by J. d. Uh, Vance, which has become a massive bestseller um under Trump, which is sort of like about, Rural white working class uh, residents in Appalachia, in in Kentucky, and about their, yeah, about their life, about their expectations, about their anxieties, amongst sort of like massive change, deindustrialization, you know, coal a coal mining area. So I think those would be some, some sources if people look for um, sort of more input of what's of what's going on in America.
0: Thank you to Gorg for that excellent chat. Uh, Gorg is on Twitter at g uh, Lofelman, so I'll spell that out for you: g l o e f f l m a n n. Obviously, it's in the podcast blurb as well. He doesn't seem to use his Twitter too much, so best to instead check out his page on the Warwick University site, which is also easily Googleable, and I've popped it on the podcast bio too. And on that page is a link to his current research study on populism in the US and Europe, uh, as I said, called "The Enemy Inside the Gates," and I will pop that link on the podcast blurb as well because I am. Prepared. Um, Vox, which Gorg mentions, is always worth checking out and often are some of the very best explanatory videos for current issues that explain things clearly to idiots like me, so I'm a massive fan. Um, the others Gorg mentioned, uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post, are brilliant, but they have paywalls, so watch out for that if you don't already subscribe. Um, and I'd also suggest, for all US politics stuff, uh, if you don't already, check out Pod Save America, Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, and of course, Last Week Tonight on Sky Atlantic or HBO, if you can get those. Or, you know, loads of other things, because America is great for actually good political tv shows satire comedy and podcasts and i'm regularly jealous and no don't you dare tell me about the three things the uk has and how there is good no they're not they're all bad except maybe blind boy's new one which is very worth a watch what's that no i'm not jealous that i'm not involved in any i've been invited to work on another show no you wouldn't have heard it no it's on a channel that you won't have seen anyway uh, don't forget if you have someone that you'd like to recommend I interview or a subject you think I should find someone to interview about, uh, please let me know. And you can do that by getting in touch at Parpol Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Group on Facebook, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, have it engraved into your head like the ancient Egyptian method of scalp tattoos, and then let all your hair grow back and turn up at my flat demanding I shave your head to receive the message. At which point I'll panic and send you to the barber down the road who's actually really good, and he'll spend so long. I'm talking to you about Turkish football teams you'll doze off and forget your main task as ever it's probably just best to email and that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast thank you once again for choosing to have one hour less of the allocated listening you get in your life because of this show what do you mean you didn't know you had finite listens yeah that is a That is a true story. That's why old people don't pay attention to all of us pleading for them to vote nicer. Fact. I mean, it's just too late for them. They spent way too long listening to The War. I don't know which one. Or Bards or something. Please review, donate and generally sing about this show as you skip around the merry sunlit lands where you live so others may know the delirious joy you're experiencing. Or, you know, just tell people you think this is all right and it's better than hitting your eye with a spoon, so why not give it a go? Thank you once again to Acast for attending to this show in his sound hospice, to my brother The Last Skeptic for his music blinking and plonking, and to Cat Day for typing up the linear notes as per all of the time. Uh, this will be back next week when Dominic Raab exclaims excitedly that he's made friends with the man in the mirror just doesn't know how he always knows what he's going to wear. Bye! This week's show was brought to you by Remember Dis Daywear for when you don't have the right coat to honour the dead. Shake off that anorak and swap it for one of our codpiece poppies and nothing else to show that you still rise for the fallen. Eschew a suit and tie and why not dress as a truck with a giant poppy attached to the grill? No one will say you it forget it did, when you show up in that 75-foot long-haul costume with large poppy attachment and horn that plays Europop versions of Wilfred Owen poems. Remember this for all your most respectful attire for the club or the cenotaph. <laughs> oh dear.
1: Planning for your next trip?